Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards, and I'll be your host today. As I have been for the last 21 episodes, this is episode 22, The Structure of a Clan Part 2. I'm glad you joined me. Thank you for tuning in and sharing this, this conversation with me, talking about the subject with me. I've got to say, the interaction with the listeners is just getting better by the episode. There have been so many of you. You're tuning in on Facebook. You, you're, and that's. I actually have to say that's where most of the conversation is taking place. It'll either be on the Scottish Clans Facebook page, but sometimes, if there's a particular group that I think is pertinent to the episode, I'll post a link to the episode to the to the Podbean app with a notification that's also available in iTunes and Spotify, and I'm trying to get it on Stitcher right now. I'm not. I'm just working through that process. It's, it wasn't quite as straightforward as the other platforms, but yeah, most of the conversations either taking on the Scottish, taking place on the Scottish Clans Facebook page, or when I reach out and I put a link to the podcast to the epi- that particular episode. Let's say the last one that I did involved the Cares and the Scots, and and the the Elliots were in that mix too. Who else? Also the Douglases, and so what my common practice is is I'll reach out and pop a link to the pot to the podcast of that episode on the Douglas Facebook page or the Kerr or the yeah, the Scotch or the Elliots. I'll I'll put that link to that on there, and so that'll give that, and they'll they'll comment sometimes on that area too. So whether it's this, the comment on that link on that specific Facebook page, or whether they've actually come over to the Scottish Clans Facebook page, which is probably the easiest. Either way, um, I've had some really quality interaction with you listeners, and so I just want to say if you've got on there and we've had some dialogue go back and forth, I just want to tell you I really appreciate you doing that. We, we've, and some of you, some of you are just new to the subject. You do not have a scholarly background in this, and I just, I appreciate you just making any comment. Hey, what about this? Or what about that? And and I, I've, we've had some good conversations with those of you coming from that background. And then on the other hand, there's some of you that are coming into this who've actually studied this out. And I was, I had a, a listener comment recently. Um, I think. I'm not looking at the Facebook page right now, and this wasn't part of the planned podcast, and this is kind of unscripted, but I believe it was Brendan O'Murrigan, and I, I'm sorry, Brendan, if I just completely slaughtered your name. It was cool he had the Gaelic, the spelling for it, and and he knew, he was like, hey, you might want to take a look at the, the Black Book of Tameth and the Red Book of Clan Ranald, and, and I thought, oh, wow, this, this guy's really... In you know he knows his stuff. He knows what a lot of the original sources are, and and yeah, I just I just really appreciate that, and and that to me is making this podcast worth it. Just being able to talk to somebody out there, and not just one person, several of you who are into this subject. I really really appreciate it. I just want you to know that. And if you've so if you're listening to this and you've been ever one of those people. I just want you to know that I, I'm glad you did that. It's, it satisfies a, a part of my soul to have this conversation. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're what, like in either category, one of the brand new guys or whether you are um, 
whether you're just steeped in this, you're familiar with all the work that's been done on it, either way, I'm just really thankful for you. And so if you're sitting there and you are listening to this podcast and you hear a part of it that you feel like, oh, I got a question about that, and he never did really go into any more detail on it, or if you're sitting there thinking, you know what, he just slaughtered that Gallic name and I got, uh, I got, I know how to, I know how to say that. You know what would be really cool is a little video or an audio clip or something that, that I could listen to. A lot of these place names, personal names, I've only ever read. I'm doing my best. Um, what else? I, I do kind of want to give a shout out to my friend Dane. Dane, thank you. He's, he's popped in on a couple of these conversations and he's weighed in on. He's very, he got his master's degree in international studies. We were in the same unit, in our, that same Army, Army Reserve unit for a while. And we got to be really good friends. And he just turns out he really likes Scottish history too. He likes history. He's very well read, has a very broad interest in this. And so when he chimes in, it's usually in a very educated way. So thanks for thanks for being a part of this, Dane. Anyway, what I want to get into you uh, into with you today is I want to reach back and visit the subject of the structure of a clan. I told you this would be a series, and you can see that in the title that I'm putting on this, The Structure of a Clan Part 2. The last time I talked, I focused on the chief's retinue. Who, who would be in that? I gave some examples of some of the positions that would be in, in an average Highland chief's retinue. And by the way, I'm sorry for those of you who are listening that are more from a lowland background, whether that's from the border country or Ayrshire or over closer to Edinburgh or maybe you're swinging up the east coast and that area that's still considered lowland and you're just like, ah, this is just highland stuff. I'm sorry, but my sources that I gave back in part one, and I'll tell you them again, they focus mostly on the highlands and Gallic society. This, uh, specifically, the sources I'm referring to are... Michael Newton's Warrior of the Word, Warriors of the Word. That's been a, a very helpful. The subtitle on that is The World of the Scottish Highlanders. It's been very helpful. I got it for a Christmas present a couple of Christmases ago, and I've just really enjoyed that. So I don't know if I'll ever have Michael Newton listening to this, but if you do, I just think your book's awesome. And then another one is John Bannerman. Kinship culture, kinship, church, and culture, and it's a collective collection of essays from him, and and it's his. He also focuses mostly on Gallic society, so that's where I'm bringing this information in largely from. And I, I'd say if I could rank the two as far as what I'm pulling for, for for this subject, I would say probably Warriors of the Word a little bit more so than Kinship, Church, and Culture by John Bannerman. Michael Newton is he's really breaking down the structure of the clan. What should we think about when we think about clans? And part of what I want to do today is correct mis um, mis misunderstandings. That's not the word I was looking for, but I think some some assumptions that we have when we think about the clan society. And I'm just talking from a personal background on this because. And I'll, t- I'll tell you how that all started in a bit. But So last, I kind of got sidetracked, which I do. If you've listened to any more than one or more episodes, I get on tangents a little bit. But 
the last episode, we talked about the Chiefs retinue. We talked about what positions might we find most of the time in a Highland Chiefs retinue. I'd love to know how that would compare to the heads of Lowland kindreds. Anyway, and then we also got into examples of which kindreds or clans were often filling those roles because some of them, it became a very hereditary position. Like the McVericks, very common for them to fill the bardic tradition, the, the, the lore, the history of the people. But they, they never, you do see that they did not confine themselves specifically. You do, you do see the surnames that are known for this one particular category, but you see them also pop up maybe in a clergy position or these others. So they weren't, this is not rigid boundaries that we're talking about here. So and anyway, if you want more on that subject, go back to structures, the structure of a clan part one. I believe it was two episodes again, which would make it episode 20, I think. Anyway. Hey, and I do want to say that I think I heard somewhere that most podcasts don't make it past episode 7, and here we are in episode 22. Anyway, what we're going to talk about today, I told you we're going to mis, mis, uh, misconcept, preconceived mis, misconceptions, I think that's more of the words I was listen, looking for earlier, about how clans are set up. So here's, here's my own story on this, and maybe you can identify with this. So I've got this map of Scottish clans that I bought in a mall when I was a teenager. And it's got the map, it's a map of Scotland, and it does have specific place names on it, but rather than break it down into political divisions, like they're broken down into today, that you would, the different council areas, and anyway, it was broken down into clan territories. And it was not unique to, or specific to just the Highlands. All of Scotland with the exception of the Northern Isles, Orkney and Shetland, broken down into clan territories. I was fascinated with this. In fact, it still kind of it still kind of holds my attention and holds a place in my imagination. But if you don't have a podcast like this to listen to, or you're reading the book of the scholar the books of the scholars, the written works there you get an oversimplified view of how clans are made up. So here's what I here's how I looked at this map. Oh, this is the Grant territory in the Northeast Highlands. Okay, so the Grants held this territory and the people that lived in this territory were all Grants and yeah, a chief's territory was filled with his guys and that was it. A bunch of people named Grant in this particular geographical area <clears throat> okay that's if if you relate to that we're going to take it to the next level because that's not how it was so let me let me first talk about i'm going to start at the chief because i last time i talked about the chief's retinue but i didn't talk a lot about the chief so let me let me talk about that a little bit today and i'm not going to go into really fine detail on this but i just want to make a few noteworthy comments about the chief. The chief was the overall leader of a kindred. Now, when I say of a kindred or a clan, that's a little bit misleading because there are people who would have answered his call if he let, let's, and I think most of the examples we have of this is warfare. For whatever reason, the chief has decided that it's time to summon the clan and and mobilize in a military manner. 
not everybody that responded to his call would have not only would have not would have shared a kinship to him they wouldn't even share the last name and some of you might think I'm getting that backwards I'll go into more detail on that later but in an oversimplified way he's the head of the clan now there's this concept in Highland Scotland and the Gaeltach they're the the Gaelic speaking areas there's this concept and I've mentioned in previous episodes called it's the, the Gaelic word is duchas I think I'm getting close on the pronunciation there Duchas was, it referred to the territory, but it was much deeper than that. And I don't think that we have a very good English translation of what Duchas meant. Because, <clears throat> I'm sorry my voice is getting a little froggy. I need water, but I didn't bring water. I'm sitting in a vehicle, and it's kind of a long story. I'm not going to go into it, but you kind of get these opportunities to record your podcast in when you can. So please forgive my froggy voice. But Duchas was a the the land that you inherited but it was also referred to your heritage as part of the, the land was mixed into your heritage and and it was just there's a lot more it was a, it was a heavier word than just a geographical area that your clan controlled there's a lot more to it than that and and it was the the whole clan kind of had buy-in in this it wasn't well it's our chief's land, and he lets us live here, and sometimes he does nice stuff for us. Like, we all have a share in this. And it wasn't necessarily, I don't know if communal property would be accurate either, but, but this, is, this, is our, this is our kindred. This is our homeland. This is where we're from. And, and I'll tell you, I, I tend to get very attached to locations. Where I live now, I'm very attached to it. Um, where I'm from, Malad Valley, southeast Idaho, I know you're, some of you are thinking Malad. That's isn't that the French word for sick? It is, and it's a long story. And I don't want to get too sidetracked here because I do it enough. Anyway, my my dad's side of the family helped settle that valley, and my mom's side's been there for a couple generations already now too. So there's something more than more to it. And I feel a, a really strong connection to that valley. So that's kind of what we're getting into when we talk about duchas and so you gotta you can't just have everybody making decisions for the whole thing and that'd be chaos you need a leader and so the chief the kindred that controlled that territory he was kind of the the head of how are we going to use this territory the resources that we have here for instance the mcleods of of lewis and and maybe the mcleods of harrison dunvegan they would have they would have controlled sh- some shipping lanes as well as some fishing territory because it was all out in the western isles in the hebrides both inner and and outer if you're outer if you're in the clouds of lewis it was outer hebrides mcclouds of harrison dunvegan would be inner hebrides was mostly sky anyway you would have controlled maybe some some fishing territory in the, in the ocean and so how are we gonna how are we gonna use that resource? And that was that was the chief. He's thinking about that, but it wasn't just the chief. Aside from the retinue of of scholars and musicians and military leaders in his group, and and there's some overlap here. But he would have had a council. A lot of clans had a council. Now, if you're a huge clan like the McDonalds, you're now you're talking. You're not just. It's not just the McDonalds clan council. You were talking about the the council of the isles 
and there is a lot of other major clans. I just mentioned the McLeods. They are on that council. The different branches of the McDonald's, they are on that. There's Anyway, it was made up of a lot of clans from the Isles who would give input to the chief. So he's not just, the chiefs, I guess what I'm saying is the chiefs aren't making these decisions unilaterally without any input from anybody else. They're, they're, they're counseling with these people that are close to them, who they've put in a position of trust, and and they're, they're they're making decisions. But he's he's the final say and making the making the call. That's that's kind of the overall idea. Um, in in the heyday of the clans, the chief had a very paternalistic role to the clansmen. Now this changes. As you get farther, and, and I, I mentioned my friend Dane, we had a discussion on this recently, and, and I actually uh, Neil King in, in his comments that he had made about the the actual fall of the the clan system. You, you know, a lot of people oversimplify it, and I think what what Neil King was was challenging was this: you can't just say, "Oh, they got beat at the Battle of Culloden, and there went the clans." There is a, so many more factors, and Dane more. Uh, weighed in on that one with some of the research that he's done on the economic factors and what we're also seeing culturally though is these chiefs as leading up to that become more distant they start spending more time in um, in the lowland areas where it's got the, the economy's stronger some of them even are hang, hanging out in London a lot and and if in case some of you are just like he mentioned a battle called Culloden, and I have no idea what that is that was a there was a rebellion a lot of Highland clans, not all of the Highland clans, jumped in on it to put the Stuart guy that got kicked off the throne, they tried to put him back in. And so it was this huge rebellion. And they did really well for a while. This is in 1745 is when it kicked off. By 1746, they're backpedaling back up into the Highlands. The English under the Duke of Cumberland has got their their act together. It, the Scottish clans could mobilize militarily super fast because of this kin-based system. And the, the English had a, took a while to get them get their feet underneath them, but when they did, it went poorly. And the, the Scots, the Highlanders, and the Jacobites, there was, it wasn't just Highlanders, but they're trying to backpedal and get up, and they had this huge battle up in, near Inverness. And, and it just, the Highlanders, it, they, they actually had, had some bright moments in the battle, but at the end, it was just, it was awful. It was awful. And a lot of people point to that as, like, there went the clans, but it wasn't that easy. To, it's not that simple. A long time before that, these chiefs, and this is why I'm bringing this up, the chiefs are starting to spend a lot of time in, in Edinburgh, and like I said, even some down in London. And they're becoming a little bit estranged from their clan. This concept of duchus, like we're all involved on this land, and it's kind of our, our heritage and inheritance. That's going away, and the chiefs are saying, no, this is actually my land, and I can do with it what I want. And that later down the road leans, leads to highland clearances, and that's another that's another story that probably deserves an episode or so. So, that's the chief um, in the heyday of the clan. Very looked at the clan as I'm kind of the father figure for everybody. They mediated in legal affairs. They had a lot of power. Now, I've I've heard some sources kick around the fact that oh yeah, within his territory, a chief had the ultimate say on life or death and everything, and he was kind of all powerful within his territory. Uh, maybe that's true for. Like the the duke, the the later duke the, the Earl of Argyle, who was the head of all of the Campbells, somebody on that level maybe the the Earl of Huntley, who was the the chief of all the Gordons. They were a very powerful northeastern clan. 
maybe on that level it might have been true. I'm not really sure if that was true for lower clans. And that kind of brings me to my next point is not all clan chiefs are equal in ranking. I just mentioned the Earl of Argyle and the Earl of Huntley as the heads of the Campbell, Kindred, and the Gordons, respectively. There were some other big, big players that operated on a national, even an international level sometimes. And maybe that was true for them in their realms. But there were some smaller clans, and I don't know that they had quite the the amount of autonomy to make some of those decisions that some sources make it out to. Like, oh, the clan chief. Well, maybe more so that for some clans than others. Now, like some of the smaller clans whose chiefs would have been lower ranking in Scottish society generally may have included the the uh, McNaughtons of Dunderev, the McFarlands were a smaller clan, the McThomases of Glenshee, or the Brodies. <clears throat> These territory-wise are not huge. They're, they're ranking, they, like they... Their their chiefs were not earls, which is fairly high up in the Scottish peerage. Anyway, and I, those are all Highland examples. Maybe if I was going to use Lowland examples, I could say, well, maybe Armstrongs, Bells, Glendinnings, Elliots, those those were, wouldn't have occupied the same the same position down in that neck of the woods as maybe Douglases, as maybe some of these clans that held war, mar, march warden positions like Maxwell's and Johnston's. And, but even then, that was very localized to the border country where they were a big deal. Douglas's would have been, they were big all over Scotland. Had territory all over Scotland, but at their core, they were a border clan. Um, the, maybe the Humes were, were pretty powerful as well in, in the border country, but, but also Scotland in general, they were really powerful. So I'm just kind of trying to give you some examples of the different levels. In the Highland example, I mentioned the Gordons and the Campbells. Of course, the McDonald's, especially with the Lords of the Isles, but even even after the Lordship was was yanked out from them in 1493 officially, they still, they still after that, were a, a very powerful clan with the branches of the McDonald's being independently powerful clans in their own right. So who else would have been powerful in the Highlands? The the uh, Mackenzie Earls of Seaforth were very powerful, especially as we progress and go farther into the the history. They uh, they become they like as you get into the 1600s, they're, they're they just keep gaining momentum. The Mackenzies do also. The, I ought to mention the Macintoshes, as the Macintoshes were. It wasn't just the chiefs of the Macintoshes, but the chief of the Macintosh also held the position of the chief, uh, the captain of Clan Hatton. And so it wasn't just his kindred that he's calling upon. It's this much larger confederation of clans. Now, that position was contested by the McPhersons, but generally he, he can summon many clans to a battlefield. And so that, that made him pretty powerful as well. I, that doesn't mean to be an exhaustive list of power in the highlands versus the borders or other parts of Scotland. Just to give you an idea that not every clan chief had equal ranking. Now, just under the clan chief, we had this term, this Gallic term called Dinuussel. And that was the that was the gentry of the clan. Usually this this at this layer, they are closer related to the chief. 
And these are the people that he's putting in positions of, of authority throughout. There's a specific type of a position that he might put people in, and that's called a taxman. So let's say that within a clan's territory, and I don't have, a, I didn't prepare a specific clan to use an example for this, but let's let's just say you uh, let's let's use. Well, never mind. I was going to use some cartoon example, but let's you have this chief, and let's say within his territory there's five towns of any size or, or importance, or maybe he breaks his territory down to five districts, and and that'd be a, a chief's call, I guess. But he, he would put, he would have, they call him taxman. The, the Gallic term for this is, there's a few different terms here. You have fair bala, fair feron, or fair taka. <clears throat> but in English, it's a taxman. And so he's the guy that's put over that town or that area. And he's responsible for collecting rents, collecting taxes, um, and ma- and otherwise managing the resources within his stewardship, and so so that the chief puts his guy in there, and he makes sure that the chief's getting back to him what he needs to run the whole territory or run the clan, and to perform his duties, and to make sure that he has what he needs to then turn around and and then o- he owes dues to somebody superior to him. So there there the taxman or this. And, and so usually, once again, those taxmen were drawn from a chief's closer kindred, not like ninth cousins, more like first or second or maybe even a brother or something like that. Um, there's no hard rule to that. Could a, could a chief put a taxman in, in charge of uh, an area or a city or a town or something that wasn't related to him? Yes. In fact, well... I'll, I'll get to that in a second. These these taxmen who are drawn from the Danu Wussel, the leading gentry of the clan, these this this group of higher ups within the clan that are close to the chief and he trusts them, they would so in times of military conflict they would be the ones who are becoming the military officers, your platoon leaders. I'm just thinking of my own military experience. I don't know exactly how each clan had their military stuff broken down, but I'm thinking of platoon leaders, company commanders, even maybe the battalion commanders if your clan's big enough to be to have that many people under you. So the, that's who this this group of people would be, would be the Dean Wessel. So, and, and I, once again, I'd love to, to learn how that counterpart may have existed or not existed or what it would have looked like in the lowland areas. Because once again, we're, we're really, really specific here to the highland clans. Whenever we start getting into Gallic terms like that, now once again, the Lowlands had, the Lowlands had um, Gallic spoken in part of there, especially down in Galloway. All right, so the the next level down from that would have now you're now you're your tenants, and so these are the people who are actually working the land, or or maybe it's not agriculture, maybe it's some other like the. I was, I think it was Martin McGregor that I read one time that said, or maybe maybe it was Michael Newton in a different publication. But anyway, he said the McFarlands were, they they made swords. Well, that's pretty cool. So, but the guys are, not the, not the manager of the sword making facility, but the, but the actual guys, the blacksmiths, the the farmers, the guys doing the actual labor, your tenants, that's your that's kind of your bottom level of of clan society. Now, so if a Let's let's use the McPhersons as an example. They they control a pretty significant spot of the southern portion of Strathspey. 
well, within their territory, not everybody would have been a McPherson. There would have been plenty of people there who were, A, there before the McPhersons were given that territory. And just a little side note, I understand that the McPhersons gained territory in that area at the expense of the Cummins. And right after the Scottish War of Independence, Robert the Bruce says to these McPherson brothers, hey, you can go in there and anything you can forcibly take from the Cummins, I'll, I'll back you up on. And so they go in there and they they run the Cummins out and they take over this this big portion of what's called Badenoch. So they get there. And so if a McPherson chief, if he's going to call his clan up to fight, the people who would have responded to that call, yeah, you might have a a pretty good portion of them might be actually blood kin to you. There's actually going to be a pretty sizable portion that are not blood kin. Now, of these people who are not related to you, many of them might actually change their name to McPherson because that's who they owe their loyalty to. That's who's looking out for them. That's 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 just the, the climate that, and the position that they're in. And so a lot of people actually did change their name to whoever is now in charge of that area. And you know that, and that's another problem with that Scottish clan map, is that re- represents the the state of affairs at one particular time in history. But it was dynamic. It, it One clan didn't hold one place, control of it for, since written records were started and then right up until they had to sell it because they got into debt or whatever. They, that was, it was very fluid. And so sometimes those surnames change and it was much more likely that those surnames would change amongst the lower level, these tenants, this bottom level of social, of society more so than the upper class. Their, their last names can be very fluid. Now, I, I, I wonder this about myself. Like, so you get established in an area and how many people is it realistic to assume are actually kin to the chief after so long? And I actually just thought about my own family on this. So my mom's side of the family, my mom's a Corbridge and they have a ranch out here in Southeast Idaho. And there, so my granddad he was one of 11 siblings. And so here we are. We have these reunions every year at the ranch. And now we're having like 200 people show up. And so I'm just telling you, not very many generations, especially when like our society now does not put as much emphasis on being married or having kids, either one. But in this culture, in this time period, in this place that we're talking about, there was huge emphasis on marrying and for a lot of different reasons I'm not going to go into all the the nuances of that but but then having kids and so it would not take very long for a particular kindred to have control over an area before that they could be populating that area with quite a lot of people who are actually not very distantly related now times that by like two or three hundred years in the same area yeah a lot of those people are actually going to be kin to you through one way or another. And I just can look back to Malad Valley, like I mentioned earlier, as evidence of that. We had a, <clears throat> they came up and wrestled our high school up here. And so I showed up and I haven't lived in that valley for 20 years. And, but uh, these, I'm seeing these familiar names on the back of these wrestling uniforms and I've got a guy that's sitting next to me. He's actually my second cousin. And he's more plugged into the community. And he's telling me who all these guys going out of the mat are. And I'm like, I'm related to half of this wrestling team. 
But that's how it happened if you had a kindred in an area for long enough. Is that, yeah, yeah, those bonds of kinship. And we're not, a lot of people, especially from the city, might like, yeah, a bunch of inbred rednecks. Well, actually, no, this is evidence of not inbreeding. Inbred people have a totem pole for a family tree. And they're not related to only but a small, very group, very small group of people. These people are inter, intermarrying with each other and other kin groups, and they're spreading out. And now you, not very long down the road, you are related to a lot of people. So I just want to, I just, I guess, just dispel some misconceptions about the makeup of a clan and how that worked. I do want to refer to one illustration in Michael Newton's book that I referenced earlier. He has the chief, he has a little diagram, the chief, and then he's got three taxmen underneath him. Now he has, out of the three taxmen, two of them are actually somehow kin to the chief, and the one is not kin. So he can put people in these positions who are not very closely related to him, if at all. And in the tenants, let's say each of these three taxmen have three tenants underneath them. Well, for the in this diagram, for the first taxman that is related to the chief, two of his three tenants are connected by kin, and one of them's not. The next taxman, who's also related to the chief, he has three tenants, and out of those three, one is connected by kin, the other two are not. And then under this third taxman, who is not related to the chief, and his three tenants, none of whom have a blood connection to the chief. And so, I just want you to get this idea in your head of a very, very fluid, very dynamic system here. There, there was not rigid, hard rules. Both of the makeup of the clan, the, the actual men of it, or and women, or, or like the clan territories, they there was some fluctuation there. And a clan that had held this one glen for five or six or seven or eight generations, but now for some change in politics or economics, it changes hands. And that happened. And some of those clansmen might move off to some other area and settle in there or they might just stay there and the people who stay there they might keep their previous surnames or they might change it to the chiefs the new the new chief and when it comes to that the surnames were mostly a big deal for the higher echelons of society for the lower echelons of society well up until fairly modern times they were not adopting very fixed surnames especially not on a very local level if they had to leave that area or they were getting into some legal documents or something, now they might start using surnames. But a fixed surname that goes back very very far at all in time, we're dealing mostly with the upper echelon of society. So there you have it. There's just some thoughts on the makeup of a clan. Feel free to continue this conversation. That's about all the time I've got right now. But I'm, I'm, I, like I said, I love your comments on Facebook. They're getting better and better and just more of you are responding and I sure appreciate it. Just one one last invitation for you to do. So you've listened to this. If it was informative to you at all, and which I hope it was, please go on whatever platform you're listening to. If it's iTunes, please subscribe to the podcast and leave me a review. Not just how many stars that you think it's worth, hopefully five, but but also leave me some comments. Give me some give me some feedback on there. And and I'm and yeah, I do want constructive criticism on how it could be better, but I also if you if there's things about it you like, I need to know specifically what to keep doing right too. That's that's as valuable. And plus it's a nice self-esteem 
booster when you know that you're doing something right in this world of th- doing things wrong. So if that's in iTunes, if you're on Spotify, like the, the podcast. If you go straight to the Podbean app, a lot of you are going to that now to listen. And so if you go there, you can you can continue the conversation, the comments, and the Podbean. Or, like I've mentioned before on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. And that'll take you to the Scottish Clans Facebook page where there'll be a, a link posted to this this episode. And if you want to make comments, you can make comments below the link to the episode or you can just use the messenger and send Scottish Clans messages and I'll get it. And hopefully I see it in some kind of a timely manner and we, we continue this conversation. But I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining me this time. And until next time, have a great day. Bye.